Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Dare I say it? It's time for another exciting edition of The Bible Geek, and I'm your host, Robert M. Price, and uh, sometimes known as Art Fern, but uh, we'll get into that another time. Uh, I'd like to, uh, to get into some exciting questions, and they always are, because I've got the best uh, audience uh, around. Uh, filled with uh, keen intellects, uh, all driven by a self-motivated desire to, to learn, and uh, it's much better than classroom teaching, let me tell you. Okay, here's one from Brian H. in New Hampshire. I wanted to let you know that Amazon sent me a notification that Judaizing Jesus would be available on September 9th, Looking forward to it, and congratulations, and I believe that means it ought to be out right now. Uh, to my question, I was recently listening to Mark Goodacre and Derek Lambert speaking about Samaritans, and I realized I don't know how a person at that time would be able to distinguish between, um, I think I'm missing some words here, well, a Samaritan and anybody else. Uh, it certainly isn't like Star Trek. I know my Klingons from Vulcans for sure. But would foreigners dress different, have a different language, follow customs that would set them apart immediately? Thanks again. Well, let's see here. I uh, did a little research on this and came up with uh, only a little. It seems like in the Hellenistic world, uh, in uh, both Europe and the Middle East, people pretty much dressed the same way because the uh, customs floated around through trade and so on, travel. And everybody wore the same kind of uh, stuff, you know, what you see in Sunday school pictures. Uh, in the Bible, the uh, you notice that the Samaritans are um, either just uh, designated as such because of the omniscient narrator, like in the Good Samaritan parable, right, where um, the uh, where the the author knows that the guy is a Samaritan. Uh, but uh, the the big question to me would be how he knew that the man he finds in the ditch was not a Samaritan, and uh, but I'm guessing there wouldn't have been really any difference. Uh, they didn't have like you know, sports team jerseys on or something. No, that would have been pretty good. Um, but uh, just suppose this guy was a Jew and this guy was a Samaritan. And uh, in fact, you, you could even drop the suggestion that possibly the priest and the Levite, who apparently were indifferent to the man's condition, um, 
uh, were uh, Samaritans themselves and thought the guy was a Jew, but uh, I don't know. Uh, it, it's either the omniscient narrator, narrator uh, or it's uh, some kind of uh, uh, just a geographical coincidence. Like, how do, does Jesus and how do his disciples know that the woman he's speaking to at the well um, was well, Jacob's well, I think, uh, is a Samaritan, hence the scandal, right? Uh, well, what are you doing talking with him, the likes of her? Or when she uh, sees Jesus, and Jesus, tired and thirsty, uh, says, uh, <clears throat> lady, could you give me a drink of water? I don't have a bucket. Uh, and and she says, Lou, I... Uh, you know, how come you, a Jew, give me a Samaritan? Uh, uh, how could I give you a, a drink? And then uh, the evangelist says, well, because they have no, Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Uh, well, you'd have to add, or, or you could translate, don't use dishes in common with Samaritans. Right? And uh, yeah, that, that presupposes a well-known enmity between the two groups. Uh, but uh, again, you'd have to ask, how did she know he was not a Samaritan? And uh, it only develops, really, in the, the conversation when they talk about different worship traditions. You know, you people worship on this mountain, but uh, we worship in Jerusalem. I, I, my guess is that uh, you just ask to accept that, and there's no... Uh, uh, no explanation, um, because they, they must have been dressing pretty much alike. Uh, so I have to admit, I don't get it. Could, could it possibly be a different uh, inflection or accent in the same way that the bystanders at Caiaphas's palace uh, or the, the people gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost recognize this speech of Jesus' disciples as Galilean? Speaking the same language, but they, from the accent, they can tell. Uh, and uh, I don't know. It doesn't really say, and I guess you don't need to know. Now, I think of a, a Buddhist story that might well have been the origin of the Samaritan woman story. Uh, one where Ananda, one of the, the disciples of the Buddha, the one most like Peter, actually, because he often gets things wrong, uh, only to be corrected by the Buddha for the sake of the reader. Uh, he is tired and stops at a well, and uh, it's uh, and this woman comes up and uh, with the the bucket, and he says, uh, "My sister, would you give me a drink?" And she says, "I can't do that uh, uh, because uh, I'm a member of this caste, and you're a member of that one." And the punchline there is, uh, lady, I didn't ask you what cast you were. I just asked you for a drink of water, uh, and which is, I suspect, the original punchline of, uh, of the Samaritan woman story. But he could have known that because of cast marks, right? Uh, that's, but I don't think there's any record of uh, uh, Samaritans and Jews having outward uh, ID like that. Uh, I mean, even like, you know, well, the, the well is in Samaria, right? So uh, Jesus would probably assume she, this woman must live around here to be drawing water from this well. So it's a safe bet she's a Samaritan. But how would she know he wasn't? Uh, I think it's just uh, a little detail that would matter if this were history, but it is not. Um, 
So I, I doubt, I think it's a purely literary thing that kind of overlooks what for the sake of the point of the story is, is irrelevant. But if you try to imagine it as a historical event, yeah, there's, a, there's a problem. Um, you know, there, there were a couple of sects of Samaritans who would make the trip down to Jerusalem to worship at the temple rather than at the ruins of Mount Gerizim. The Gorathenes were one such sect, uh, which might be in mind in the Gospel of Thomas, saying where, where it says the Samaritans saw a Samaritan carrying a lamb. Uh, and uh, Jesus says, you ever stop to think what he's going to do with that lamb? And he's on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, and he says, well, he'll slaughter it and sacrifice. He says, yeah, that's right. You don't want that to happen to you, do you? In a figurative way. Uh, but uh, none of that stuff comes up in, in this. We're just supposed to know that uh, these are the ostensible good guys and these the ostensible bad guys. Uh, thanks, Brian. Sorry I didn't have more of an answer, but I don't know if there is more of an answer. Uh, here is Luther. I, I think not Lex Luther, because it's spelled with an E-R, not an O-R. But uh, Okay, he says, in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, Paul outlines what he received about the Lord's Supper. As I understand it, if we assume a historical Paul writing in the 50s, the possibilities are these. One, Paul actually received or thought he received his information about the Lord's Supper via revelation from the Lord. Two, Paul heard this tradition from other early Christian groups, but lied and said he received it from the Lord. Uh, three, Paul heard this tradition from other sources that were not Christian or proto-Christian groups, but lied and said he received it from the Lord. Or four, Paul invented this so-called tradition, but lied and said it came from the Lord. My question is, which of the above possibilities seems most likely to you and why? And if I'm missing something as a possibility, what am I missing? Well, all of them have uh, some problems, uh, but um, it seems to me uh, that uh, I, I gravitate toward High Maccabee's suggestion uh, that, uh, number one, uh, that uh, Paul had some sort of a dream or vision uh, in which he saw this uh, this banquet, which might have been in heaven, not on earth, by the way. After all, we do hear in the book of Revelation about the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? And, um, or we hear uh, in uh, Q, where Matthew and Luke, where Jesus says, uh, the many will come from the east and the west to sit at table with uh, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and uh, you guys may think, Where, where's my invitation? Uh, well, um, that's presumably in some sort of heavenly or at least uh, non-worldly setting, uh, and not just some table someplace on earth. And uh, it, uh, well, what about the on the night he was handed over, and, and that's what paradidomi means, right? It could mean betrayed, like uh, 
hand it over to one's enemies, but it might mean, uh, I mean, it often does mean uh, yielded up or delivered. And uh, it could envision uh, Jesus, Christ, whatever you want to call him, up among the angels and uh, uh, introducing some ritual connected with his imminent incarnation where he will... um, uh, go through the redemptive sacrifice. Being delivered up would mean, in that case, uh, handed over to this world and this kind of existence. And uh, and why think this? Well, it's because of the analogy, uh, if, uh, or it might not be, but it kind of sounds like an analogy to the claim at the beginning of Galatians. Is hey, I did not receive my gospel, my message of from any human source. Uh, I got it directly from Christ uh, and from the Lord. Well, I have to wonder if that's not the point here, right? That um, he uh, that he's he's not saying the same thing. That look, this isn't just some custom that Martha Stewart made up. Uh, this is uh, what uh, God said. I mean, he's like pulling rank. This is the way you ought to do it. And how do I know? Because Christ himself in a revelation uh, taught me. Makes sense. Now, you could, on the other hand, compare it to what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 3 through 8, where he says, I delivered to you as of first priority what was also handed on to me. Uh, and namely that, and then he goes into this, uh, what seems to be a kind of standardized text of the uh, facts of salvation, that Christ uh, died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, he was buried, he rose on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, uh, and so forth, and then he appeared to this one, and then he appeared to that one, and then he appeared to this one, and then he appeared to that one. Uh, As scholars have been saying for a long, long time, this sounds like a standardized text, a creed or a piece of liturgy or something. And in that case, doesn't it imply that Paul received this from the framers, the people that that experienced those uh, those, um, resurrection epiphanies? Though, of course, it doesn't exactly say that, right? Uh, And uh, again, that is really the same conundrum we find about this part of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Received is is part of Jewish tradition language. We received it from from Rabbi so-and-so, who got it from Rabbi so-and-so, etc., etc., who got it from Moses, who got it from from Yahweh. It, It could be. Um, or it could mean I got it directly from God. It's tough to say. And uh, I think that, uh, I mean, even and even if it is intended to be a piece of catechism or something that Paul got from earlier Christians, it doesn't say that he got it from the witnesses, the people that had these supposed appearances. That's just a... Uh, to me, that's that's like saying the Apostles' Creed was composed by the twelve disciples, so each one giving one of the articles of faith. That's totally gratuitous, and I think this is too with First Corinthians fifteen. 
And uh, the same thing here. Uh, he, he received it directly from the Lord, presumably. It just seems odd to me that you would put it that way if you envisioned intermediaries. Uh, so I think that uh, that probably number one is correct. But again, I certainly don't know. It's, uh, I didn't get that answer from the Lord. Okay, who's this? Uh, this is interesting about my favorite. From Darren Crawford. He's talking about the New American Standard Bible. He says, I'd be interested to get your take on the recent guidance given by the Lachman Foundation regarding the New American Standard translation of the Bible. It seems that they have gone along with changes to some of the gendered language of Scripture with the stated goal of making the text truer to the original intent. I know that you disagree with much, if not all, of this tendency toward historical revision. Are they really interested in getting closer to the truth of Scripture? Or is it just another capitulation to the progressive currents in the academic world? Well, you know, uh, given that it's a bunch of fundamentalists that did it, did this, which does not count against them. I've always thought, well, naturally, they have a zeal for uh, not misrepresenting the holy text, and uh, that's why I, I appreciate their literal translation. So, but, but it's a little surprising that they would be pressured into inclusive language. So here's, he's, he says, here's what they say about the changes. Uh, gender accuracy. The NASB 2020 is designed to be a translation that is accurately understood by the average reader in keeping with the third principle of our long-standing fourfold aim, capital F, capital A. Uh, the first two principles call for a translation that is also accurate, so it is the goal of the NASB 2020 to be as clear as possible in the area of gender accuracy. One of the most noticeable ways we accomplished this goal is with the addition of or sisters in italics. Uh, in the NASB, italics are used to communicate to the reader words that are not found in the original language, but are implied in the original language or are needed for a complete thought in English. While some may argue that simply saying brothers inherently implies a mixed gender group, modern English has changed and exclusively masculine terms are not universal today. Uh, an important guiding principle was to only expand the phrasing to specifically include women if it was indisputable that the original language would have understood the text to mean women were in fact included. Because the goal of this update is to make sure the verses are accurately understood in English, it is interesting to note that not every change results in the broadening of the language to include women. 
There are some contexts in which, because of changes made to be more gender accurate, it will now be clear that only men are being addressed, whereas before that distinction would not have been as clear. For instance, in Acts, there are several places where previously the term brothers was used, but in the Greek it was clear that only men were being addressed, reading men brothers in those speeches, right? Uh, um, in such instances, there was no way for a reader to distinguish whether the term brothers was referring to men only or to a mixed gender group. By making changes where appropriate, the reader will now know with certainty whether the reference was to a mixed gender group or to men alone. Well, uh, Darren, I, I don't like this if you're talking about a, uh, a, a, an attempt at a literal translation. It, uh, it already interprets more than is necessary, in my opinion. Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza back to this kind of thing by saying, well, there's no reason to think the early Christianity was an all, you know, a men's club. Uh, what was it in the little rascal those though the woman haters uh boys club or something like that um but it seems to me you can't rule that out because think of the thing in first corinthians 14 where it says if a woman desires to know anything in the public meeting let her keep quiet till she gets home and then ask her husband um, uh, and yeah, I'd love to, to hear that, right? Uh, hey, uh, Gaius, uh, what was that blowhard talking about? Uh, what was this thing about Leviathan and uh, and Azazel? And that's uh, nothing. Uh, you get back in the kitchen. Uh, but uh, the thing is, there was this idea in Judaism also that women were not necessarily to be educated in the Torah because they weren't really responsible for keeping all of it. They were like minors, and, and sometimes they were much younger than their husbands. I wouldn't be, and there were mystery religions where only the men got the uh, the inside scoop. So I wouldn't has I would not uh, hasten to assume that whenever it says brothers, it it uh, also implies sisters. Uh, I I don't know. I mean, in fact, even if you just said, well, that was the common usage. Doesn't such a usage presuppose a chauvinistic uh, approach uh, that uh, you, you wouldn't put it that way if you didn't think, well, the men are really the ones that count. I think this is a kind of an apologetics to say, oh, well, <laughs> yes, it uh, kind of looks chauvinistic, but it isn't. Look, uh, don't try to cover the warts and the blemishes in the Bible. You know, let's be honest with it. And uh, it's, uh, I mean, what are you going to, how far are you going to go with this? Uh, it looks like some early scribes, speaking of 1 Corinthians, added uh, a, a phrase to the salutation, uh, God's church uh, in Corinth and everywhere else. Like, that would have stemmed from an anxiety lest someone say, oh, well, this doesn't apply to me. 
uh, well, of course it doesn't in the sense that it wasn't written to everybody, like like Romans might have been. There's a decent chance of that, or Ephesians, but um, something like Corinthians, probably not. And uh, and so you're you're uh, you you're bringing in dubious assumptions, like would all of the early Christians have the same problems that are addressed in 1 Corinthians? Uh, it, if they don't, if they might not, that's kind of important. Like, did they all have charismatic gifts? Well, in 1 Corinthians, well, maybe things weren't the same in Thessalonians. Well, they did have prophecies there, but in Galatia, who knows? Right. So I'd like to stick with uh, the literal uh, personally, and and say if I were giving a sermon and quoting this, I say, well, of course uh, we wouldn't restrict it to uh, to women. Obviously, uh, things have changed, um, and what's the big deal? I think you're just trying to cover the butt of the Bible on a thing like this. Uh, admittedly, this is not all that important, but it's more like a liturgical aid. What they're doing, I think, the first. Um, inclusive language New Testament I ever saw was overtly a worship aid. It was changed somewhat so as not to offend people in the uh, congregation needlessly. And I could see that, but I wouldn't put that in a study Bible or an ostensibly uh, literal translation. Uh, so I may be splitting hairs here, but that is, you know, what I, what I think of it. I'm sort of sorry the NASB is doing that. Uh, but anyway, thanks, Darren. Very interesting question. Okay, this is from uh, uh, Taper. He, the only part of the name he gives, says, Hello, Dr. Price. I've been listening a long time, and I've also been reading some of your books, most recently the fantastically titled Incredible Shrinking Son of Man and Amazing Colossal Apostle. I've got a couple of questions. You know, I love these cheesy titles. I also did one called uh, The Night of the Living Savior. And... Uh, Oh, and, and one that uh, will come out pretty soon now. Uh, when Gospels Collide. I, I'm open to suggestions for any other cute titles. Uh, I sometimes say, oh boy, I like that title. I think I'll write a book to go along with it. Anyway, uh, a couple of questions. The first one, you observe that Thomas wasn't really a contemporary name and must have been an epithet, as it means twin in Greek mythology. Uh, uh, oh, sorry, a twin, period. In Greek mythology, several demigods are supposed to have mortal twins. Hercules has Iphicles, and Pollux has Castor, uh, who are the children of their shared mother and her mortal husband. That's just like in the TV series I watch religiously, Superman and Lois. Right? Who knows how that uh, earthly and Kryptonian uh, 
how those genes are going to mix. Well, uh, it's, you really wonder if they'd be compatible at all, but uh, they have t fraternal twin sons, and one of them has superpowers and the other one doesn't. Actually, that's based on a Superman imaginary story, as if they aren't all, uh, from decades ago where that happens. Uh, but yeah, that's just like this. Uh, I tell you, it's all modern mythology. The pattern is apparently pervasive enough that Robert Graves felt the need to suggest uh, Parathus as Theseus's missing twin. What do you think of the suggestion that this pattern would have produced a twin, Thomas, for Jesus, once he was understood as either naturally or adoptionistically the Son of God? Is there anything to contradict this supposition? Well, it's an odd thing for it to have been left out of uh, the nativity stories of Matthew and Luke, but it's an almost irresistible uh, temptation. And uh, the like the Acts of Thomas um, plays on this. It, it has Thomas and Jesus being identical twins. Now, and so um, there, there's an intended confusion. Uh, somebody takes Jesus for Thomas, and, uh, and, and uh, uh, Jesus uh, sells himself, quote-unquote, actually Thomas, as an indentured servant to Gundaphores, the, the king of India. And he goes there and is engaged to, because he's a carpenter, does that remind you of? And uh, the king engages him to uh, engineer the construction of a great palace for him, uh, and thereby hangs a, a tale. Uh, well, and they make a point of the fact that Thomas and Jesus look exactly alike. Well, that might imply this uh, actual brotherhood between the two, but... It's hard to say because the other major apocryphal acts, like the Acts of John, the Acts of Peter, the Acts of uh, 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 Andrew and Matthias, uh, the Acts of Paul, all of them contain a scene in which Jesus assumes the form of the apostle for some reason and one where the apostle is mistaken for Jesus. So it, it, it might be just a recurring metaphor for the fact that uh, Thomas is now like Jesus, as in the Gospel of Thomas, um, where Jesus in saying 13 says, uh, make a comparison to me, tell me who I'm like. And uh, so Matthew says, you're like a righteous angel. And Peter says, you're like a wise philosopher. And Thomas says, Master, I, my mouth is not capable of saying what you're like. And Jesus kind of pats him on the head and says, don't call me master. From now on, you know, you and I are equal uh, because you have drunk of the, uh, the, the fountain that I have uh, gushed out of, of, of the knowledge. And he takes Thomas aside for an advanced course in the truth, which he cannot tell the others because it's so far out. They'll never understand it and think he's a blasphemer. Well, uh, if, if that is... So some took that 
to be the meaning of Thomas, the twin of Jesus, that he's like a kind of a spiritual clone of him. Now, that could be, and again, if that is the case, uh, and similar things are said about James, the brother of the Lord, that he was spiritually but not physically, as if to correct people who thought, well, he did have a brother named James, according to Mark, uh, is this he? So this kind of thing was batted around. But the most interesting part of this, it's, it's for me, is that um, the uh, this that uh, is there something going on behind the scenes of the tradition that you know in John where Jesus appears to the disciples alive again, but Thomas is not there. Uh, does that possibly imply that Jesus wasn't resurrected and his twin brother Thomas was taken to be Jesus? Was he not just absent for the moment because he was out getting pizza? Or was it that he had never affiliated with the Twelve until he shows up here and the others say, oh my God, look who it is, but it isn't. I don't know. I realize that is, it's not even original with me. I can't think of where I read it, but uh, oh boy, is that a, a tempting idea. A case of mistaken identity. Okay, second question. There seem to be several layers to the development of Christology, detectable as distinct strata in the texts. These appear to have developed over a period of time from a Jesus adopted as Messiah at his crucifixion, to one adopted at his baptism, uh, to one born as Messiah and pre-existent. How does this, de this development square with the concept, for which I also see evidence, of a purely mythical Jesus crucified in heaven by the archons? I could imagine a situation where a historical figure increasingly understood as a more and more exalted figure is equated and conflated with a mythical personage who developed separately. But is there a simpler solution? Well, I'm not sure if this is uh, a simpler one, though what you say could be so. But I'm working right now on a book um, to be called Christology and Mythology, where my uh, basic question is, is, uh, is it like how can, how can you square the mythicist notion that there wasn't an earthly Jesus and that nobody thought there was at the beginning? But later, they found uh, reasons to claim Jesus had come to the earth and taught the bishops and the, the disciples who taught the bishops. So, uh, you know, there's many different versions of Christianity out there, but we've got the copyright because we actually had a man among men. Uh, Jesus teaches this stuff. If you say that the heavenly Christ of the Holy Spirit revealed this to you, I can say he revealed something else to me. And in fact, other people were saying that. So it might have been an attempt to say, oh yeah, we got the real thing. You're just hallucinating, pal. Uh, and this is the uh, theory of... Uh, uh, um, what's the guy's name? Um, Arthur Dreffs, I think it is, spelled D-R-E-W-S. 
Uh, and But I think that is quite likely. So in other words, it would mean that Jesus was humanized somewhere along the line. Oh yeah, sure, there, there must have been a Jesus. So there was a Jesus. We need there to have been one, so there is one. Um, and yet, uh, and, and the Gospel of Mark was the first known gospel to do that, to narrate it. And, um, and, and he has the messianic secret that uh, Jesus really is the Messiah, and really anybody should have been able to see that because of the miracles he wrought and so on. But he kept it a secret until the resurrection. Uh, well, this is already a big step toward adoptionism. Uh, because he would have he would have become the Messiah at his baptism, and then it was revealed at the resurrection. Uh, well, uh, in the later Gospels, as Vreda, who wrote the Messianic Secret, pointed out, there's less and less consistency about the Messianic Secret. Uh, the writer, the subsequent Gospel writers, all know that. Uh, that Jesus was the Messiah, and that by now all their readers know he was supposed to have been the Messiah. Uh, and, and there are even nativity stories. Mark didn't have one, right? But Matthew and Luke have nativity stories where Jesus is pictured at least as a kind of a demigod, right? And, and so forth. And so he's letting it slip more. Actually, the subsequent evangelists are making it, uh, letting it slip out. Uh, and uh, they took some of the Son of Man sayings. Oh, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Hey, wh what about the Messianic secret? You're not supposed to be blabbing that. Well, by this time, it was moot. So if if you see any signs of the Messianic secret, it's it's just vestiges. It was really a dead issue by that time. And then later on, Jesus is trumpeting out, like in the Gospel of John, for everybody to, to hear, it, it, unless you believe in me, uh, you're not going to be saved, and uh, so forth. Uh, it's, you know, he's not even talking about the kingdom of God anymore, hardly. He's talking about how he came from heaven, uh, and, and so on and so on, and that he and his father are one. Uh, and there's even signs of docetism. Uh, like when uh, he seems to be hungry at the at Jacob's well in Samaria, uh, uh, lady, give me something to, to drink. But when the disciples get back with uh, with food and drink, he turns it down. He says, "I have food to eat that you know nothing about." Uh, what uh, my will, my food is to do the will of my Father in heaven. Or later on in the Gospel of John, where he says, "I thirst." on the cross, it's not because he actually is thirsting. Uh, he's, it's as he said it, so scripture would be fulfilled, thinking back to one of the Psalms. Uh, and so, uh, and then later on in the, uh, in the secret book or the Apocryphon of John, uh, he becomes even more exalted. Uh, well, I, my theory is that just as they couldn't keep mum about the messianic secret in the same way they gradually kept letting out more and more of the notion that Jesus was not really a human being on earth. Uh, but uh, though he appeared from heaven, perhaps, like Asclepius did when he healed people, that uh, he wasn't in flesh and blood and maybe wasn't even on earth. 
Uh, and so uh, that's so. It seems to me you you can explain it as a case of the truth will out, that the old belief reasserted itself. Uh, and uh, I don't know if that's true, but that's the the theory I'm exploring. Um, but um, in fact, I I start out saying there are two kinds of theories, maybe on the extreme ends of the spectrum among scholarly. Uh, discussion, there is a kind of adoptionism, which is the historical Jesus or historicist point of view. Okay, he was a rabbi, he wasn't a superman, but but he was eventually deified by his followers. That's analogous to the story in Mark, where the character is a human being who is then exalted to divine dignity. Well, the other one is mythicism, which is like incarnationism. It's an analogy, right? The theory is that there was no uh, Jesus, who's a heavenly entity, uh, but then gets humanized in the faith of Christians. So he's incarnated into the gospel story. And just like the old debate raged, a new version of it does among scholars who may not even believe in the supernatural at all. So very, very interesting stuff here that you've delved into. Okay, uh, finally, I was struck by your, uh, uh, Taper says, I was struck by your observation in The Amazing Colossal Apostle about a scriptural author's insistence on their name. No, uh, really, now, uh, what am I doing? No, really, it's me, Paul, uh, as a really good sign of pseudepigraphy. As an ex-Mormon, I'd often been bemused by just how often Nephi, and the first book of, in the Book of Mormon, first Nephi, uh, declares that it's I, Nephi, who's doing this, or saying, or saying that especially if he had to engrave every single word onto metal plates. Your observation makes a lot of sense out of it, uh, that it's largely authorial anxiety, though part of it is probably also Joseph Smith stalling for time as he dictated the thing from his hat. Uh... Anyway, thanks, and keep up the good work. Yeah, I uh, I could be wrong about that, but uh, the fact that you see it definitely in uh, pseudepigraphical works, the genuineness of which no historian supports, uh, and then you start seeing it in dubiously authentic canonical books like Daniel and so on, um, and in Revelation, where... Uh, Jesus speaks in the first person. I, Jesus, have sent my servant and all that stuff. Uh, would I mean, isn't that simply a literary technique as if to say Jesus said, but, but this is supposed to be first person speech. And so to anchor the pseudepigraphical authorial claim, they say, I, this, I, that, in fact, one thing that made me uh, prefer this theory uh, is reading in... I'm a big H.P. Lovecraft nut, as you probably know. And I was reading some 
uh, some of the Necronomicon stories uh, written by my pal Lynn Carter, uh, and he would assume the persona of Abdul al-Hazred, the, the mad author of the Necronomicon. Well, he would always say, I al-Hazred. Well, who's that for? Would he have done that in the original book? Would it matter who had written it? Uh, it's like uh, it's like it's just that Lynn Carter is trying to reinforce the uh, suspended disbelief uh, impression that oh here it is from the pen of the uh, the mad Arab himself. And I thought, yeah, that's just like these other books. So that's what I think, and uh, it uh, makes a lot of sense to me, though, of course, it's abhorrent to most. Hey, here is uh, something from SR. Uh, here's an important question. Assuming there was a common source, the Q source, the question arises, why was he deleted, quenched, made to disappear? After all, the making of the New Testament seems to have been a well-organized affair, and the historical narrative in it is an essential part of it. How come the earliest source, the one closest to the original history, is made to disappear, is not given explicit credit for its essential contrib con contributions? Uh, the uh, the important participants in the original stories, the stories of Jesus and of Paul, all appear in the New Testament. Which one of them wrote Q? My answer is none of them. The great common source was Josephus, which obviates the absolute uh, need to hide him. Moreover, Josephus himself must have insisted that his involvement be stricken out completely. Josephus was a faithful courtier, I hope I'm saying that right, to the Flavians, but it seems that deep inside he was ashamed of his desertion and treason. Well, uh, there are very, very interesting, uh, I must want to mispronounce this as coincidences, because coincidence implies just chance, luck, uh, correspondence. But there, there are many places where Josephus's works coincide with the Gospels in sometimes startling fashion. Uh, and uh, Joseph Atwill has pointed out a bunch of these, some of them really startling. Uh, and uh, you don't have to accept all of his, his theories any more than you'd have to accept all of mine if one of them attracted you. But he's pointed out a lot of stuff that makes him think Josephus was the primary author. I wouldn't go that far, but I do think uh, it's enough to show that Josephus was one of the sources of the Gospels. Uh, now, I wouldn't say Q, because that's that material is those sayings almost entirely. That's not reflected in Q. Uh, and uh, so that, I think, even if uh, Josephus... Gee, I never thought Joe Atwill. Is it, does it stand for Josephus Atwill? I'll have to ask him sometime. Anyway, um, I, I wouldn't think that even if he wrote the, uh, the historical narrative, he came up with all of that stuff. Uh, the sayings material, but I just um, uh, published an article uh, in the Journal of Higher Criticism where the writer points out even more correspondences between um, 
Josephus and uh, the Gospels with regard to rebel leaders and what happened to them and uh, being betrayed and this and that. Pretty fascinating stuff. Uh, and of course, they're the famous ones, uh, like Joseph of Arimathea being the same as Joseph Bar Matthias and um, oh, uh, the, the three men crucified in Josephus. Two of them die, one survives sort of being reflected in Jesus crucified with two lestai, or criminals, revolutionaries, and uh, his body is taken down alive, though they don't realize it, whereas the other guys are already dead. I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty remarkable. And so there is, and then in Acts, the business about the Egyptian and Judas and Judas of Galilee, that stuff seems to come from... Uh, from Josephus, rather than being independent information about the same figures. So it's uh, it's pretty tricky. I wouldn't say that Josephus was the writer of Q, but here's what I why I think we don't have Q anymore. I, I think that um, since Matthew and Luke apparently have used almost all of Q, um, and uh, I mean... There is some little material uh, in each gospel that sort of sounds like the Q material, but isn't in the other gospel. It, the scholars debate whether those little bits were uh, also in, uh, like the mustard seed parable, uh, the, the, that's in both, but the the uh, leaven is, is not. I think that's the one. Uh, but at any rate, uh, so much of it is in both of them that uh, the theory is that people just stopped copying Q in its own right because they figure, well, we've, we've incorporated it into these two Gospels already. Uh, and uh, that well, the same could be said about Mark. Why bother copying that anymore, since over 90% of it appears in both uh, Luke and Matthew, each one? Uh, and the answer there is probably that Mark was likely written in Rome and carried the prestige of the Roman church, and so people were not going to stop copying that. Uh, and uh, so I don't find it that tough to uh, to understand what happened to, to Q. Uh, and as for anybody taking notice of it, it, it is a reasonable theory, though I, I wouldn't go so far as to say the most probable, uh, to, to spot Q in one of the fragments of Papias, who said that Matthew wrote down the oracles of the Lord uh, as best he could, and then others um, made copies of it or translated it, whatever, uh, and F.F. F. Bruce and others have said, well, uh, could he mean Matthew wrote our Gospel of Matthew? Because there's a lot more than sayings in that. But on the other hand, it is organized around five huge blocks of sayings material. Uh, so it could be he's talking about our Gospel of Matthew, but maybe not. It would be easy to read it as saying that he wrote down the sayings and that was Q, and that others decided to use it as a source and used most of it. I don't know, but it's it's not uh, hardly impossible. It's not even implausible, really. Though I don't know how how it could ever be decided. So fascinating.
By the way, I doubt Josephus thought he was uh, uh, a deserter and a traitor. Uh, I think uh, I'd give him the benefit of the doubt. He, he needn't have been understood as a villain any more than, uh, than Jeremiah was. He said, hey, everybody, uh, the Babylonians are coming and you're not stopping them and they're going to destroy your precious temple. What do you think of that? And they threw them down a well and so on. Uh, I think uh, Josephus maybe felt, well, I guess I can see the handwriting on the wall. I guess uh, we, we're we being punished for our sins and God is invoking Rome as he did uh, Assyria to, to uh, destroy Israel and the Babylonians to, to knock off Judah. I don't see a problem with that. I don't know that he was a, a, a villain. Um, but you can see why he was pretty unpopular. Hey, and uh, this last... Oh, no, it isn't quite the last is there, is it? Uh, oh, no, it certainly is not. But let's, let's do this. Hmm... I think came from Ben Abelo. No, no, from David Perlmutter. I've never heard of this Egyptian text and the claims it, that it verifies some of the narrative of the Exodus. Would you care to comment? And uh, he, I, I'm sure he's referring to this, the Ipur papyrus, if that's how you say it. I obviously do not know any uh, Egyptian that I didn't hear in mummy movies. Uh, here, I, I don't know much about it. I think Velikovsky mentions it somewhere. But I did look it up. Uh, you know, this is the cheapest third-hand research there is, I guess. But I Googled it, and here's what they said. Uh, Ipur has often been put forward in popular literature as confirmation of the biblical account of the Exodus, most notably because of its statement, The river is blood and its frequent references to servants running away. This assertion has, that it's about the Exodus, has not gained uh, acceptance among scholars. There are disparities between Ipur and the narrative in the book of Exodus, such as that the papyrus describes the Asiatics as arriving in Egypt rather than leaving. The papyrus' statement that the river is blood phrase may refer to the red sediment coloring the Nile during disastrous floods, or it may simply be a poetic image of turmoil. Yeah, again, you could argue that this is incomplete and that it would, after these extant lines, it would have gone on to say these terrible disasters came upon Egypt as the slaves ran away, but, you know, no evidence is no evidence. Uh, it, uh, I don't think that is enough to, uh, to uh, back up the historicity of the Exodus story. Pretty fascinating, though. Of course, the reason that uh, Velikovsky was interested in this was he thought the turning of the Nile into blood was literally a reflection of the near passage of the red planet Mars to the Earth. But that's sort of nonsense. Um, by the way, I, I sort of hate to say that. Velikovsky was a very ingenious and learned man, but I, I don't think his, his uh, 
conjectures uh, are to be taken very seriously. Okay, uh, now this here is from Joe Schmo, a grateful student, he says. Oh, great Bible geek, we of little faith look to you as our rock of Bible meaning. Our pitiful lives await the next podcast as a lifeline. Lately, our souls are content to see frequent recordings of your clear, down-to-earth, illustrious, confident voice and extraordinary knowledge. Uh, I know your middle name is not Merlin, but it is to me, uh, Robert Merlin Price, wizard at large. Sounds pretty good. Um, I've thought of getting business cards, Robert and Price, Magus and Prophet, but I never did. Okay. Uh, Okay, what is my pitiful question? If the Romans fabricated the gospel or adopted it, why did they pick the Levant as the source it is said that the Levants, you know, Lebanon, Israel, so on, a culture was chosen as the source of the biblical text to placate the locals when the Germanic tribe's local idols were much more trouble. Uh, they could have adapted the mythical pagan gods of the Germanic and Norse tribes. I know the gods of the Norse lands were spectacular in legend, uh, we all love Thor, Odin, and Frida, also known as Loki. Huh? Loki was the equivalent of Medusa, uh, who was a witch and not a man, a la Stan Lee. Uh, I think Loki was a guy. Anyway, so why the Levant is the origin of the gospel stories when it could have been Liechtenstein as <laughs> as you often jest, right? When I say that, uh, how could you have gotten European Gentiles to care whether Jesus was the Messiah. Oh, big news. Did you hear? Uh, this guy is the, the rightful king of some postage stamp country I've never been to. I mean, who would have cared, right? Anyway, uh, uh, let's see here. Yeah. Um, oh, this is funny. Velikovsky comes in. Velikovsky comes in. Well, it... Uh, you know, uh, Judaism was very popular among uh, Romans and syncretistically snuck into other Hellenistic religions, like some thought that uh, Zeus and Yahweh were the same, some equated Yahweh with, uh, with Dionysus, a whole new religion. The Sabasius cult was based on crossing uh, Zeus with, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Dionysus with, uh, with Jehovah. And a lot, a number of Romans actually converted to Judaism, or if they didn't, at least attended synagogue. They're called uh, the the righteous Gentiles or the God fearers, uh, and uh, many who didn't do that even uh, adopted the Sabbath and circumcision and so on. Uh, there were other Romans who looked askance at that, but it was quite popular as a kind of an exotic religion in the same way that the other mystery religions from the East, like the Isis and Mithras religions were popular with Romans. Um, so I'd almost expect they would have like a, a foreign guru to make it more uh, Merlinian, you might say. Uh, the some early Christians even uh, thought of uh, of Jesus as a magician who used a magic wand to raise Lazarus from the dead, and so forth. Uh, but 
so that, that's not too uh, too surprising, I think. Uh, let's see. And then uh, Joe says, okay, now let's go to a new segment. WWIVD. What would Emmanuel Velikovsky do? One of the most puzzling aspects of Jewish customs is the burnt offerings. You throw a goat into an open-top furnace, maybe a live goat, and burn it to ashes. It must be a perfect goat, no blemishes, and no one gets to eat the meat as it is burnt whole. Uh, what was the purpose? According to, the, to events in the recent past, the Lamb of God, the child in the lap, was a name given to Mars, the red planet that was closest to the Earth. The planet Mars was burnt to a crisp by encounters with the comet Venus. That's what Velikovsky thought it was, right? Uh, uh, the child in... Wait a minute. No, electric discharges of cosmic lightning bolts acted like an, an arc welder uh, on the surface of Mars. Its oceans were boiled away. Um... I'm having scrolling problems. Yeah, uh, the oceans were boiled away, the atmosphere was incinerated, and the northern hemisphere was blasted away to the depth of six kilometers. In reverent memory, the burnt offerings could be tri uh, tribunal uh, memories of Mars reenacted uh, re by the Hebrews. This is one of the concepts that the Velikovsky postulations have opened my eyes to. The ancient myths are journals of knowledge passed down through the centuries. Uh, uh, let's see, we, I think there's a simpler explanation. The whole burnt offering means nobody but God is getting a mouthful of it. Uh, because with the other sacrifices, uh, a notable portion went to the priests or even to the people. Uh, and, and the idea was you were communing with the deity, not only in Judaism, but, but other ancient religions. But the whole bird offering means it's all going to God. Um, special treat, you might say. Uh, okay, uh, back to Job. We are a race with amnesia. The answers elude us, the trauma of Catastrophe after catastrophe has kept us from remembering the past. We are the survivors of survivors of survivors. Ragnarok happened. It happened all over the earth. Uh, Pangea was split in two, like two hands on either side. It was terrible beyond belief. It has been long enough. We're slowly accepting our past very slowly. I, I'm guessing this comes from Velikovsky's work, Worlds in Collision. I don't know. Um, uh, I saw a YouTube uh, thing the other day talking about uh, some kind of apocalyptic catastrophe that kind of wiped out everything less than 500 years ago and that it's all covered up. That I find pretty uh, unpersuasive, but... Uh, uh, this too, I, I suspect, is is not true. But I'm real interested always to hear uh, stuff like this. It is mind-opening. Thank you, Joe. 
Oh, let's see. Uh, and this is from The Hidden One. I'm familiar with your idea that Simon Magus was Paul or vice versa. Paul might have also been the walrus, but that is another matter, Kukukachu. But I was wondering, uh, it is well known that the figure known as John the Baptist had a pretty robust following at the time that Jesus was said to be active, to the extent that the gospel writers felt it necessary to associate Jesus with John in various ways. Uh, the one remaining living John the Baptist tradition, the Mandeans, has texts saying that Jesus was a fraud who tried to usurp John the Baptist's power through underhanded means. Uh, yeah, uh, Jesus was a, a false messiah, according to them. Okay, my thought, uh, maybe the things that are said about Simon Magus were based on things John the Baptist's disciples said about Jesus. The allegories were too well, I'm sorry, the allegations were too well known to wave away, so maybe the early Christians created this shadowy figure to be the focus of these stories. Uh, let me just pause here. As you may know, I tend to think that is the case with Paul and Simon Magus, that the character has been split to uh, give the good stories to Paul and the bad to Simon. Anyway, um, the hidden one continues. What I see supporting this, John the Baptist was too popular and respected a figure for them to simply trash John in return. Also, the actions of Simon Magus resemble the actions of which the baptizers accused Jesus more than they remember the actions of the figure of Paul in any way. Well, there is that episode of his trying to buy apostolic uh, recognition and so forth. Anyway, um, and by the way, uh, some Christians didn't much care for John. Uh, the Ebionites viewed him as a false prophet who was sent ahead of Jesus to discredit him. Uh, and it's like just reversing the like, musical chairs between from the, the Mandean version of John and Jesus. Anyway, um, uh, in addition, it would make it possible for Christians to deny that any rivalry between Jesus and John the Baptist existed, something reinforced by other appearances of John the Baptist in the Gospels. Well, that was the other early Christian uh, way of dealing with John, saying, oh, he nothing wrong with him. Uh, and not only did he deny being the Messiah, but he said that Jesus was and told people if they had any brains, they'd follow him. But we know both opinions were current, so I'm guessing there were there were two different ways of, like, you can't beat them, join them, or get them to join you. Anyway, in addition, no, no, I already said that, yeah. Uh, this is not based on any expertise or special knowledge on my part, so please feel free to deny or even ridicule this if you want. It literally occurred to me while I was on my morning jog. Um... Uh, yeah, I, I'm not ridiculing it. Uh, I see uh, some points that make me think it is is less likely than that uh, Simon Magus was, was actually a double for Paul. 
but they did. But John the Baptist followers at some point did say similar things about Jesus, right? And still do if the Mandeans are his latter day disciples, as I think they are. I mean, it's not an unreasonable theory. Keep working on it. I'd like to hear more about it. Uh, certainly not an absurdity or something. Uh, so I hope you have another productive jog about this. You know, yesterday I was driving home from a, well, a couple of days ago, I was driving home from a doctor's appointment and I suddenly had a revelation. Hey, I ought to make a, a custom action figure of Cthulhu Man. Uh, and not that there is such a monster superhero, but that might be fun. So I did, and he's facing me right now. Anyhow, okay, um, uh, this is Caden Fox, and we haven't heard from him in a while. I had a question about the apologetic technique of interpreting the less clear passage by means of the more clear, if I remember correctly how you've put it. I know you're not a fan of applying that to the entire Bible, as it's often used to prop up inerrancy and erase the unique views of separate authors. In fact, that is exactly the point of my whole book, When Gospels Collide. Yeah, anyway, back to Caden. But what about using that within a single work or within multiple works by the same author? I ask because I've recently adopted the paradigm that J. Alfred Prufrock is a surgical oncologist. It brings new light on what talking of Michelangelo means, as Michelangelo talks of removing bits of marble uh, until he set the angel free, just as an oncologist removes the tumor from you. Only problem is that, aside from the image of a patient etherized upon a table and cats that malinger, there's not really any clues from the love song of J. Alfred Proofrock that he is a medical man, let alone the wounded surgeon from the Four Quartets, a much later poem by the same author. Um, okay, let me uh, deal with that before the rest of this. Um, if you know you've got the same author, throughout a work, uh, I think, yeah, that is a good um, good approach to say, well, uh, he, says, he uses the word so-and-so here, and it's pretty clear what he means, so when he uses it back over here, and it's a bit more ambiguous, he probably means the same thing. I think that is legitimate. Uh, it, it's, it avoids the problem of saying, well, he, that this word... Uh, in uh, John is also used over here in in Mark, so I must mean the same thing. Whoa, wait a minute, it might, but you got to really look at the context and so forth. But uh, yeah, within the same work, right? Oh, now this gets complicated as everything seems to in this field because uh, there there are possibilities of interpolations. Into, um, into the gospel. In fact, one of the very earliest comments on the gospel of John by Papias was that Marcion was uh, John's scribe and that he added a bunch of passages. 
And, uh, you know, I don't know if that's true, but that implies somebody thought there were interpolations and inconsistencies. Wait a minute. How can he say this when he said that over there? I can name a few. Uh, and uh, so, uh, or uh, Raymond Brown suggests that the Gospel of John was written in different stages, all by the same guy? It could be, but maybe not. Was the Johannine Appendix in John 21 written by whoever wrote the rest of it? Might be, but maybe not. It seems to have been subsequent also. Uh, so if you're sure, then yeah, a good good idea. But then again, with Paul's letters, oh my gosh, it's Pandora's box. Did he write any of them? Did he write all of them? Did he write some of them? Uh, or did he write all of a single letter? I don't think we necessarily have a different, uh, let's say, that you could pick out two or three with the same authorship. Uh, and even within each text, it looks to me like they're patchwork quilts, like von Manen said. Uh, it seems like, in First Corinthians especially, like you got a tennis match going on. Boing, 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 over to this side and then back to that side and so on. Uh, should women speak in church? Well, yeah, as long as they're veiled. Oh, no, no, let them ask their husbands questions at home. Um, can you, can, can women, um, um, well, what uh, I guess it's the same one. Can you eat meat offered to idols if you realize it's just a hamburger and that there aren't any such gods receiving these sacrifices? Sure, what the heck? Oh, no, you better not do it because God might kill you like he did the ancient Israelites after an idolatrous feast. Um, do apostles have the right to be compensated by their congregations? Sure they do, uh, but uh, I never do because that creates the wrong impression. <laughs> What? And there, there are various of these things. Uh, is speaking in tongues good or is it bad? Uh, you just get different ideas from one chapter to the next. And it kind of implies what you've got is a digest of different Paulinist writings written by disciples, would-be disciples or followers of Paul. Uh, so I, it's if you knew you were dealing with work by the same author, yeah. And sometimes it's pretty likely, but it's it's a it's a big mess requiring a lot of thought before you can start. Okay, Caden um, uh, says another technique, and please forgive me for not recalling the German you usually use, is to interpret the endings and beginnings as more or less the same. In the biblical context, you often speak of the symbolism of Revelation as being that similar to that of Genesis, both references to a sacred time outside of historical time. Uh, that's that's uh, uh, Hermann Gungel's phrase, that uh, the, the end site, the end time, is, mirrors the, the Urzeit, the primordial time, the time of creation. It's all going to happen again, uh, like it says in the Omen. Anyway, uh, let's see, in that light, I've made the assumption that J. Alfred Prufrock has the first name of John, not just because of uh, the uh, assumption, wait a minute, not just because of the John the Baptist references within the center of the poem, but also because the poem ends with verses about 
mermaids and, quote, human voices wake us up and we drown. Drowning when you wake up is as ridiculous outside of poetry as the coyote falling only when he realizes there's no ground under him uh, would be outside, uh, uh, outside of cartoons, but not for Oanes, uh, who was a fish deity who came ashore to teach uh, wisdom to men. Uh, Robert Eisler thought that John the Baptist and John in Greek is almost the same as Ioannes. Uh, and uh, so, uh, of course, this is kind of frivolous, um, applying these things. I don't know, are, are, Caden, are you trying to say that these um, caricatures are reductio ad absurdum items? Because I, I don't think they are. They'd be more like a parody. Uh, but uh, but you don't actually say that. It's a lot of fun. Uh, thanks for sending it in. Okay, well, that's it for uh, the Bible Geek. And even for the Rain Barrel, I'm out of questions again. And I will uh, rely upon uh, the geeks and the audience to send me a bunch more real fast. And I know you will. So thanks for being with me on the Bible Geek. Either I or Art Fern will be back with you the next time. So see you then. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.